There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I have a sneaky suspicion that Zach is very excited today. Zach? See, not quite for the reasons that you're expecting, though. I've, I've hoodwinked you slightly on this one. So today we are talking about Mexico's last emperor. And a little guy called Napoleon is going to feature, but not the Napoleon that I'm usually banging on about as it Alex rolls her eyes. Grandson, right? That's right. Grandson? Yeah. So Napoleon III is going to feature in this story. To talk us through it, we have Edward Shawcross with us. Edward is a historian and a teacher and he's the author of a new book, The Last Emperor of Mexico, A Disaster in the New World, which is out already in the US, and by the time this goes out, will be out in the UK as well. Ed, welcome to History Hack. Great to have you. How are you doing? Fantastic. Yeah, really well. Uh, lovely to be here. Do you know what I love is the smug expression on Zach's face, because Zach likes nothing more than the French, a story of the French cocking things up. They definitely don't come out of this one well, um, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's, 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 not a, it's, it's not another uh, Philip to the Napoleon legacy. Okay, so Napoleon III, this is. Uh, so set the scene for us, for listeners who aren't familiar with the period. When are we talking about and what problems does Mexico experience post-independence? And why are the French even involved, I think, as well? It's a fantastic question. But we'll, well, let's start with Mexico and then we'll, we'll bring the French in. Yeah. So Mexico um, becomes independent. It's part of the Spanish Empire and it becomes independent in 1821 after a brutal war of independence that lasts 11 years. And um, now, unlike most Latin American countries that become independent at the same time, Mexico is quite unique. Um, it becomes independent as a monarchy, as a constitutional monarchy. So uh, an independence um, hero here is a guy called Itabide. He actually was a royalist fighting with the Spanish, changes sides and manages to unite the disparate groups fighting against the Spanish behind him. And he does so by declaring um, Mexico, as I say, as a constitutional monarchy. Now, there's a problem in that he invites as monarch Ferdinand VII, King of Spain, or one of the members of the Spanish royal family. Ferdinand VII wants nothing more, um, other than the complete reconquest of Mexico because it was one of the richest parts of the Spanish empire. And so you have this seemingly insoluble problem in Mexico. You have an independent constitutional monarchy without a monarch. Itabide's solution is simple. He crowns himself 
um, emperor. And emperor here is just a title. It's um, it's not that Mexico rules countries beyond its borders. It, it's a title one up from king. Now, this does not go well. Um, he lasts nine months on the throne. He's deposed, forced into exile. In 1824, he thinks he's going to be welcomed back as a hero. That's a mistake. Um, he's actually executed for treason. So then Mexico becomes an independent um, republic, i.e. there's a president and no monarch. Um, but the story of independent Mexico um, throughout this period in the 19th century is not a happy one. It's very unstable. Um, governments come and go very rarely peaceably, um, always in violent revolt. Uh, the ballot box is, is not as important as your military prowess as whatever faction is competing for power. Um, the other thing that makes Mexico unique is its proximity to the United States of America. And this is key to why the French are, are going to get involved. In 1846, the United States of America invades Mexico uh, in the U.S.-Mexican War. It's a disaster for Mexico. Uh, the Mexican army loses every battle it fights. And it ends with U.S. troops marching into Mexico City, this magnificent capital, um, um, and unfurling the stars and stripes over the main square. Now, what this means is that the only way that Mexicans can get the United States of America to leave is by signing away half of its national territory. So this is places today such as California, previously part of Mexico, after this, um, this war taken by the United States of America. So great question. Why does France get involved? Well, this is not uh, viewed um, particularly well in, in Europe and not just in France. Well, Britain is very suspicious about growing U.S. power. But what... France sees is a Catholic power, Mexico, losing territory to a, a predominantly Protestant nation, the United States of America. And this sort of cultural hegemony that Catholicism has that um, to some extent Europe has had in Latin America passing to the United States of America. Now, Napoleon III, we have to talk about him um, and not, not least because that will be delighted that we so. He's the nephew, in fact, of, um, of the original and much better known Napoleon. Um, and so 1848 is the year that the U.S.-Mexican War ends with that peace treaty I mentioned where Mexico has to sign away half its national territory. There's revolution in Paris, of course, there is. Um, there's, there's, that's, that's always the case in the 19th century. Uh, a republic is proclaimed, a uh, monarchy has fallen, and there are elections. And those elections bring back the first ever democratically elected president of France um, that some listeners may be surprised to know is, is a Bonaparte. Um, and this is Louis Napoleon, the nephew, as I say. Now, um, any self-respecting Bonaparte is not going to be happy being a president for long. Unfortunately, the constitution prohibits him being um, re-elected. It's only a one-term office. So he does what his uncle did. He launches a coup d'etat. This is actually his third attempt um, to seize power. The first two have been absolutely farcical. And if we had more time, I'll go into them. Um, the, the third one is successful, not least because he already holds you know, positions of power. He gets the army on board. And so he essentially takes over the state. Um, and within a year proclaims himself emperor of the French and has fulfilled his lifelong goal, which was to emulate what his, his uncle did. Uh, and if people have heard of Napoleon III, it's often because of this famous quote by Karl Marx, who says the first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. That's actually talking about Napoleon III's coup d'etat where he takes over power. And there's this idea um, that Napoleon III is farcical, and his regime is farcical, and it's certainly not gone down well in history. But in the 1850s, it seems incredibly successful. The French economy um, is booming, infrastructure is being built, railways expanding. Um, and in the international scene, France's isolation after the Vienna settlement and Napoleon I's humiliation seems to be ended. Napoleon III allies with the uh, British, defeats the Russians in the Crimean War, defeats the Austrians in 1859. So in a sense, to use an anachronism, France has been restored to superpower status 
And Napoleon III casts his eye um, across the globe. Where else can he increase French power and prestige? Mexico is the place that he alights upon. See, listeners will be absolutely baffled by the idea that somebody with the surname Bonaparte might be inclined to just ride roughshod over a constitution <laughs> and do what the hell they want and proclaim themselves kind of supreme leader. You know, who I do love so it? far. We've had a couple of people in this story, though, that just go, right, we need an emperor. Um, I think I'm the best person for the job. I, I can get on board with this. I now declare myself Empress of History Hack. So there, there is no and constitution. That's all it takes. That's all yeah. it takes. Self-confidence and belief. <laughs> See, does this make me the kind of little prime minister who gets executed for incompetence? Fuck no, nothing can get done if I lop your head off. <laughs> <laughs> you're my, you're my little stilico. There you go. Look, there's a reference to yesterday. I did oh, no. I did learn something from that incredible uh, but very complicated Roman podcast. So why, why do Mexicans think that... Uh, firstly, I'm really... I'm really interested by the fact that they lost so much territory because it makes the Zimmerman telegram in World War One not seem quite so batshit crazy, doesn't it? The one where Germany's like, well, we'll give oh, absolutely. you Arizona, New Mexico. Yeah. They're like, great, we're getting our land back. It's not just insanity. Uh, but why do Mexicans think that a monarchy is the like solution to their problems? Right. Well, the first thing to say here is that... Um, it's only some Mexicans, a, a small but influential minority, part of a political party in Mexico called the Conservative Party. They see what happened in Mexico, the years of political instability and indeed the humiliation at, at the hands of the United States of America as a consequence of what happened at independence. So when Itabide claims the crown for himself, this for them is Mexico's original sin because they argue that Mexico has always been monarchical. It was monarchical under the Spanish Empire. They invoked the Aztecs, uh, which, of course, was a monarchical system. And they say that it took a wrong turn um, because of Itabide. And this is what happens if a Mexican general assumes the crown. That's a dictatorship. It's not a monarchy. Um, what should have happened is that a European aristocrat of royal blood could have brought all of the pomp and ceremony that one needs to, to, to run a, a well-organized constitutional monarchy. And all of Mexico's political instability stems from that. Now, what happens in the 1850s and early 1860s is there's a civil war in Mexico between these two factions. There's a liberal group. They, they're led by a man called Benito Juarez. Benito Juarez's um, his, um, belief and his followers' belief is that actually Mexico's problems have nothing to do with the fact that it's not a monarchy. It's because it's not modern enough. It's not liberal enough. And as institutions like the Catholic Church still have such a sway over, the, over politics and people's um, beliefs that it just can't modernize. It's, it's, so what they do is they launch a series of secular reforms, stripping the Catholic Church of its lands, um, which similarly is actually what happened um, in the French Revolution. Um, and trying to bring in a much more modern secular vision for, for the state. Now, um, they would say they were dragging Mexico, kicking and screaming into the mid-19th century. Um, the people who are being dragged, kicking and screaming, the conservatives, um, don't like it. So they, they fight the civil war, but they lose. They lose that civil war. It ends in 1861 with Benito Juarez's forces entering Mexico City. And our story really should end there. It doesn't. What happens is that these Mexican conservatives go into exile and they go into exile in Paris, which is a very nice place to be exiled, um, uh, I imagine. They have the ear of Napoleon III and they have the ear of Napoleon III through his, partially through his wife, Eugenie. 
She is a Catholic and she's Spanish and she has a sort of nostalgic view of, of, of Latin America as an area of, of, you know, sort of lost to Spain with, with Catholicism in, a, um, in, in danger. Um, these Mexican exiles, um, they talk to her and they say, look, um, in Mexico, there's huge um, support for monarchy. It will restore Mexico to greatness. Not only that, if France lends us support, then France will also, um, of course, have, have a, a, an enhanced position because it will be seen as a sort of hegemonic power, if you will, in, in Latin America. And that phrase, Latin America, uh, is really interesting. It is first used in the 1850s, in Paris, in fact. And one conception of Latin America, why it's called Latin America, the Latin part of it, is that Southern European influence of Catholicism and cultural history that some argue, especially Mexican conservatives, mean that Mexico is much better suited to monarchy and much better suited to cooperating with European powers like France, rather than the United States of America, which is Protestant and has shown itself to be extremely aggressive and hostile. Napoleon III um, is, as I'm sure Zach will know, an interesting figure. He, um, because of the collapse of his uncle's empire, he grew up uh, in, in exiles and moving around various places in Europe and got involved in revolutionary societies in Italy, something of a romantic, um, but a gambler as well, a conspirator. He, he's happiest in smoke-filled rooms, making secret deals. Uh, and so this is the perfect secret deal for him. Why not support a bunch of exiles um, with regime change? It, they say that the monarchy is popular. They're going to do most of the fighting. So we can turn up in Mexico after the civil war um, and fairly easily launch regime change, install an emperor. Um, and once again, another glorious moment um, for this French second empire. So that's why he gets behind the project. So we know now why Napoleon III is drawn into it. Let's talk about Maximilian, kind of a little bit about his, his character, his background. Why does he choose to accept the throne? And also, what role does his wife, Carlotta, play within this? Right. So, of course, this once again, we're presented with this problem um, that uh, the monarchists had right back in, in 1821. It's a great idea to have a monarchy. You need a monarch. Um, so the man who they alight upon is Ferdinand Maximilian. To introduce him, he's Habsburg. So you don't get posher than a Habsburg. If you are looking to set up a monarchy in the 19th century, having a Habsburg on board is ideal. So he's an attractive candidate from that point of view. In terms of his personal character, um, he's the younger brother, or well, a younger brother um, of Franz Joseph. Franz Joseph becomes emperor of Austria in 1848, such a seismic year, 1848, I always think. Um, and although formerly the two brothers, Maximilian and Franz Joseph had a close relationship, but when Franz Joseph becomes emperor, that, that changes. Uh, Franz Joseph um, has to put affairs of state above those of family. And Maximilian, he's ambitious, but he's also dangerous to Franz Joseph. He's, he's much more liberal. He's much more gregarious. He's much more outgoing. Uh, he's very popular uh, amongst certain circles in Vienna, which Franz Joseph just isn't. He's a very rigid, cold, conservative autocrat. So he channels Maximilian's energies into the Navy, appoints him commander-in-chief of the Austrian Navy. That sounds like a, a good gig. It's a bit of a joke. Um, the Austrian Navy has ne never had a navy, really, and inherits some dilapidated Venetian um, ships after 1850, back to the settlement. And, um, and so it's a sort of, it's a way of giving him an impressive sounding title, Commander-in-Chief of the Austrian Navy, but at the same time keeping him out of Vienna and in a position where he can never seriously challenge uh, Franz Joseph to power. Now, this is not actually, well, 
to be fair to Maximilian, he he actually really embraces his naval career. He loves the sea. He loves he loves the navy, and he does a good job reforming it and, and modernizing it. But it's not what he thinks he's destined for. He's been brought up on tales of Habsburg, um, you know, heroism, daring do, and power. And but for 18 months, he thinks that should be his destiny in Austria, and it never will be. Um, and what steals that um, his determination, his ambition, is his wife. Um, so this is Princess Charlotte of Belgium, um, known in, um, subsequently in Mexican history as Carlotta. She's the daughter of King Leopold, um, and on her mother's side, she's related to, to, to the French, um, the French, um, the French kings. So illustrious birth, um, but um, uh, part of part of uh, the, this new constitutional monarchy of Belgium. So she, again, she's someone who's fiercely ambitious precociously talented, she's a great linguist, she's a really interested in history and philosophy, but as an aristocratic woman in the 19th century, her way to power is through marriage. And so when Maximilian rocks up to the Belgian court on a diplomatic mission, she's, she's taken instantly. She's sort of 16, 17 years old, very, very young. Maximilian's tall, blue eyes, about six foot, striking, blonde hair. He has a very strategic beard covering the Habsburg chin, um, which, which I think probably helps his appearance, you know, anything about the Habsburgs. And so Carlotta sort of um, uh, hitches her, her, her wagon to his, as it were. Um, but she, she's, she, she's absolutely convinced of Maximilian's greatness as well. He is briefly given an important position in the Austrian Empire as governor of Lombardy, Venetia. But to cut a long story short, that ends in disaster. His brother sacks him, um, humiliates him, uh, and then France invades northern Italy uh, and then humiliates Franz Joseph. So by the end of, of the 1850s, beginning the 1860s, you've got Maximilian um, living the life of a dilettante. He writes poetry, he, he's interested in botany. Um, but what he really believes is that he's destined to rule and to rule as a great monarch. His wife believes that even more than he does. Uh, he's constructed a fairy tale castle for himself, as you do uh, as, a, as an aristocrat with too much money and not enough to, uh, not enough to do. Um, and it's an extraordinary sort of neo-Gothic fairy tale um, um, affair overlooking the Adriatic, you could, and a wonderful place to visit. But Carlotta says, um, you know, uh, and thinks our life there is just going to be staring out to sea from this barren rock until old age. It's going to be boring. So when Mexican monarchists, backed by Napoleon III, Emperor of the French, come to Maximilian in October of 1861 and say, would you like to be Emperor of Mexico? He says, absolutely. This is, the, this is what I've been, I've been looking for. Um, he's Catholic. He's a Habsburg. The Habsburgs was, um, it was Charles V who... Mexico was first subjugated under the Spanish Empire, so you have that connection. But it's his availability, and more than anything else. I mean, other candidates are considered. Maximilian has always told him it was always you. Others are considered, um, but he's he's the one who is sort of ideally placed to accept this this um, position, which is at this stage imaginary. It doesn't exist. It's, there's no formal offer they can give him because Mexico at this stage is not a monarchy. But he's interested and he accepts. But. It takes him forever to get there, which, I mean, <laughs> his pushy wife as well. Um, why does it take so long for him to actually get to Mexico? It's, yeah, it's a great question. So he's our first, the first offer in formal offer comes in October 1861. He doesn't go to Mexico until May 1864, nearly three years. So why does it take so long? Well, there's two things. One, what's happening on the ground in Mexico and two, Maximilian's own character. So let's, let's zoom back to Mexico. I just like at this point, I'm like, it's probably all these feckin' COVID tests and lateral. <laughs> exactly. It's like. just the, the quarantine <laughs> rules, right? Yeah. Uh, and actually, well, in, in Veracruz, which is the principal border of Mexico, it was yellow fever, which was a particularly horrific disease, especially for those people who have no exposure or immunity to it. Um, so he's worried about yellow fever, but that's not what might take three years for to get there. So we've 
the next one is told Napoleon III, this is, this is going to be easy, don't worry. You just essentially need to turn up, show the French flag um, and, and Mexico rally to, to this plan. You won't be surprised to learn that's not what happens. Um, <laughs> Benito Juarez is the legitimate president. He won the civil war. So he defeated the people who, 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 who argued for monarchy. Um, and instead of the nation rallying to the French flag, rather unsurprisingly, um, you might think, they rally to the Mexican flag, which is defended by the legitimate government of Mexico. Benito Juarez was actually elected into power in 1861. Um, so you can't get more legitimate as a president than Benito Juarez. Still, um, Napoleon III, he realizes pretty quickly, French forces arrive in January 1862. He realizes this is not going to be as easy as he thought. He sends reinforcements. It's still only about 6,000. Um, that march inland after sort of various diplomatic shenanigans towards the second city of Mexico, a place called Puebla. Now, Puebla is, um, it's, it's seen, it's again, Mexican monarchists are telling Napoleon all kinds of things. They tell him that this is a sort of bastion of Catholicism and monarchism. And so the French commander of this small expeditionary force launches an attack head on into the city, does it, doesn't invest in the siege, doesn't spend a long time doing artillery bombardment, nothing like that. He thinks it's going it's to be easy. It isn't. He's defeated after a sort of heroic defence by the Mexican army. Um, and people might be familiar with this date because it's on the 5th of May, 1862, um, otherwise known as Cinco de Mayo. So if you're ever um, out there um, knocking back some, some tequila and wondering what you're drinking tequila for, um, it's because of this, this famous battle that the Mexican army defeats the French army, defeats the army of a Bonaparte, and remember that this is the army that defeated the Russians. Zach's actually celebrating. Look. He's celebrating. <laughs> it defeated the army. Uh, it defeated the French army. The, the, the French army defeated the Russians in the Crimean War. It defeated the Austrians in, in, in 1859. This is an absolutely extraordinary event, not just because it's, it's the French army, but any European army being defeated outside of Europe um, is an extremely rare event. So, this, I mean, if you are drinking tequila to celebrate this, then have another one because it's, um, it really is a moment where it's that sets the tone, right? So this is not the, the sort of gentle, leisurely stroll up to Mexico City that was expected. Napoleon III sends reinforcements, 25,000 men. So now you've got about 30,000 French troops in Mexico. You do have some Mexican monarchists who join that force as well. That overwhelms Juarez, um, and he's forced to abandon the capital. Um, but not till, the, not till the summer of 1863 do the French get into Mexico City. Uh, so the, the, the short answer to your question, that was rather um, a long rambling one, is that it takes a year and a half for the French to fight their way to Mexico City. They then orchestrate a puppet government that supposedly in the name of people is Maximilian. Maximilian receives that um, formal offer in, in the October 1863. Understandably now, he's slightly reticent to, to accept it because he realises that he's not going to be acclaimed popularly by the Mexican people. And so there's a huge amount of vacillation. And this is a key part of his character. He, he's a dreamer. And the idea of being emperor of Mexico is magnificent. And I'm sure, you know, we can all fantasize about being the emperor of Mexico. Actually becoming emperor of Mexico uh, in a brutal, bloody civil war was slightly less attractive. And this is where Carlotta uh, comes in because she steals him. She adds her determination to him and says, look, we're going. The bags are packed. You know, you just need to get on with it. Um, he still vacillates, he cries. Um, he suffers, um, you know, he suffers a lot from, from anxiety and um, has, has what we, I guess we would say mental health problems. So it's not quite as, uh, as uh, he's not quite as gung-ho as she would like him to be. But eventually, after much backwards and forwards, um, he, he does embark from Mexico, and as you say, gets there in um, May of 1864, nearly three years after this plan was first discussed. So you have a French army 
basically invading uh, a sovereign nation in the name of a cause that, with the best will in the world, doesn't have popular support. This is, if you, I, I'm going to take a step back and say, obviously, it's, it's more complicated than that. But if you wanted to draw a direct line between Napoleon I and Napoleon III, you could do this quite easily. <laughs> so what's the international reaction like? The, the French just seem to be involving themselves in these affairs. Obviously, the British are very good at this kind of thing anyway but that's kind of part of the problem right that the british consider themselves the masters of getting involved and exerting their influence in territory and the french going and doing that presumably doesn't go down too well so how does the rest of europe respond to what the french are doing here well that's that's an interesting question and actually those napoleonic parallels are are made at the time and spain being the obvious one um putting putting people on onto threats well from napoleonic path it doesn't normally end well Actually, in Europe, the, the reaction is surprisingly positive. So um, this began as a joint intervention with Spain and Britain. Britain. Britain and Spain, as soon as they realized that regime change is Napoleon III's plan, and by the way, he kept that secret from them. Um, he thought they would just get behind it when they turn up. Um, and as soon as they realized what he's up to, they, they dissociate themselves from it. But in power in Britain is Palmerston. Now, Palmerston is, uh, he's, an, he's very anti-American. Uh, um, he, he absolutely shares Napoleon III's geopolitical rationale for this intervention, which is that if the European powers don't support Mexico, it will be eventually be absorbed by the United States of America. And, for, and that's going to be a bad thing for European power, if you think of things in those kind of real polity, balance of power and um, conceptions. So Palmerston says it's, it's an absurd scheme. Um, it's, if, we, if Britain was to get involved, it would, you'd need 20, 30,000 troops. You'd need tens of millions of pounds, um, you know, which wasn't a huge amount of money in those days. There's no way we're going to do it. But if the French want to do it, it will benefit us. So he, there's actually a number of min, uh, moments, because one of the conditions Maximilian puts on his exception is that Britain must support it too. If Britain and France are behind it, as you say, then things are going to happen. Palmerston's not short of that, but what he prevents his foreign secretary, um, Lord Russell, from writing to Maximilian saying the British government will never back this because he actually wants this, this, this to happen to succeed. The other thing you have to, you have to bear in mind is that you know, in mid-19th century, the idea of Republican democratic government is quite a dangerous one um, to a lot of European statesmen. Uh, well, I say quite a very dangerous idea to a lot of European states. So when you go, you go to Lord Palmerston, you say, well, would it be better to have a monarchy or a republic in Mexico? He absolutely agrees a monarchy would be, would be a much better solution. But if it can be done without British involvement, then they will give sort of tacit support. And they do recognise Maximilian's empire. And, and of course, Austria um, as well, um, um, that gives, gives support. Belgium, for what it's worth, um, gives support, recognises the empire, allows volunteers to be recruited. So the European situation for Maximilian is pretty good. The problem he has is with the United States of America. And the only reason any of this has been allowed to unfold is because, of course, there is a civil war in the United States of America that, that breaks out almost immediately after the Mexican one ends. And in a way, you can think of this period as a sort of decade of conflict across the con uh, continent of North America, which massively impacts on the future of how, of, of how those, um, that region is going to be governed. Now, while the United States of America is torn between the Confederacy and the Union, Washington cannot enforce something called the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine, and very briefly, forbids any European intervention of exactly this kind on, um, in, in Latin America. But 
Washington's fear, Lincoln's fear, Abraham Lincoln president and his Secretary of State William Seward, their fear is, well, if we push too hard against what the French are doing in Mexico, the French might recognize the Confederacy as an as a independent nation. Worse still, they might lend um, economic aid and, and, and you know, worst case scenario of all, military aid, right? Because that conflict is in the balance at this period. So there is a small window, and that's absolutely Napoleon III's gamble, and he knows that, and that's why he launches it in 1861. There's a small window in which the Mexican empire might be able to consolidate itself um, free from US, US pressure and interference. Maximilian doesn't have popular support, um, but he does have some support. There are people in Mexico, uh, as I say, um, especially within the conservatives um, um, section of Mexican politics, who are hugely opposed to, to Benito Juarez and his reforms. And they believe that the attacks on the Catholic Church are impious, that Juarez's liberal vision for Mexico um, is incredibly damaging. And so it's, you're absolutely right to say he's not going to win an election. But there are tens of thousands of people who, who, who rallied to the imperial, what imperialista banner, imperialista is the name of supporters given to Maximilian. So in 1864, he's got French support, he's got um, foreign volunteers from Belgium and Austria, and he's got, um, uh, he has support in Mexico, albeit contested um, and, and, and certainly not the majority. So he's not completely hated, but he's how not he received when he gets there. Well, so he's the one one character who Maximilian. It's very easy to paint him as this sort of bumbling idiot um, who is constantly prevaricating over decisions. He's charismatic. He wins over a lot of people from the Liberal Party. In fact, who because he himself considers himself a liberal, a moderate liberal, someone who who believes in, in what he would call the spirit of the age of progress. Um, he's not a died in the wall reactionary trying to support the Catholic Church as punish colonialism. And once he explains that in person, he's very good in person to leading politicians in Mexico. Some very big names actually come across. Some of Paris's own supporters um, urge him to resign. They say, well, we're never going to defeat um, the French army in open battle. Not now they've got 30,000 troops there. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, and Maximilian actually confirms a huge number of the very liberal reforms that Polito Juarez had been fighting for in, in the war that we mentioned. So he's not, he's not, um, He's not universally hated, but of course, if you are, you know, died in the war supporter of the president Benito Juarez, you are never going to accept the change of political system. So one of the major problems he faces is that that civil war is, is rumbling on. Benito Juarez is never defeated. He just retreats. Mexico is enormous. I think five times the size of France. 
Um, and it's twice as big as the area of Algeria that the French army is, is currently brutally um, pacifying in inverted commas, but with far fewer troops that the French have in Mexico in order to accomplish that. So they're, they're, they have those problems that the government of Benito Juarez is legitimate, it's undefeated, it has popular support. The other problem Maximilian has, um, aside from the growing US pressure, is that his, his treasury is, is bankrupt. Napoleon III, and this, this is probably another you know, typical uh, Napoleonic trick, has essentially leveraged the conquest of Mexico uh, and put it on the Mexican government that he has installed. So it's costing hundreds of millions of francs, and that's not going to be paid for out of the French treasury. That's going to be extracted um, uh, from the Mexican treasury. It's essentially a loan, and additional loans are taken out by Maximilian. So he's bankrupt. He's in the midst of a civil war. And, and once the US um, deals with the Confederacy, he's going to face serious international opposition. There's just an echo there of, I'm going to build a wall and then get the Mexicans to pay for it. <laughs> not that I'm genuinely, not that I'm drawing comparisons between Trump and Napoleon III, um, because Napoleon III... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. But actually had a modicum of intelligence at the very... Well, no, he had more than a modicum of intelligence, actually. I'm being, I'm being trolly, but... <laughs> anyway, I want to um, jump in with a counterfactual just whilst we're sort of talking about the situation more broadly in the North American continent. And I'm thinking about what Alex was saying earlier about the Zimmerman telegram and the whole fact about the Mexico losing California to the US earlier in the century. In a world where all of this doesn't happen, would there have been any appetite within Mexico to capitalize on the anarchy that's going on in the US to then march in and start annexing bits of the US whilst the US is trying to fight a civil war. And therefore, you know, because of this, what happens in the, the US manages to play out in the way that it does? That's a really interesting question. I think that the answer to, to that would be no. Um, in insofar as Mexico's relations with the with the Union with with, with President Lincoln, President Lincoln um, is very sympathetic sympathetic towards Mexico, and in a in a way that that counterfactual is, is a shame. It's a shame that this happens when it does, because Lincoln uh, would reset relations with Mexico. Lincoln was very opposed to the U.S.-Mexican War. Uh, he voted against it. Um, he saw it for what it was, which was an illegal war. Um, the president deliberately misled Congress um, to, to, to get them to declare war. And he was known as Spotty Lincoln because the, uh, before, obviously, he became slightly better known for his role in the U.S. of war um, because the president, it was President Polk, had said that war discrimination happened in, in U.S. territory. U.S. troops had died. That was the, you know, the reason why the U.S. had gone to war. And Lincoln would always say, show me the spot, full well knowing that the spot was actually inside Mexican territory. And therefore, the entire rationale for the war um, was illegal. So the relations between Benito Juarez and um, the, the Republican Party, um, which back in those days was a very different party to the one that we have today, I'm sure your listeners will know, um, was, very, was very positive, actually. And I think for that reason, um, uh, the, 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 there wouldn't have been 
that um, that tension because those relations would have been, in fact, it's, it's a real high point of, of relations between the Mexican Republic, Benito Juarez, and the US Republic after the US Civil War, um, which is slightly um, skewed by the assassination of Lincoln and, and the president, uh, the next president is, is, is less interested or sympathetic towards Mexican affairs. But I think where um, what you might have seen um, had the French not invaded is you would have seen active Mexican support for the Union against the Confederacy. Because if you think about it, that what's pushing that expansion, that southward expansion of the United States of America is that um, southern constituency, which is looking for more land, more slave states um, to, to, to encompass. And so there was no love, um, for, for, uh, as you'd expect, for, in Mexico for that view of manifest destiny. Slavery had been uh, made illegal in, in, in Mexico in 1829. So the Confederacy might well have um, had a much harder time of it, in fact, um, had it not been for the French intervention in Mexico. So you've mentioned he's got supporters. There are conservatives uh, who, who value the concept of Maximilian coming in and being emperor and stuff. Um, but he goes and cocks this up, doesn't he? <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Well, Maximilian's a man of you know, enormous contradictions. And he tries to rule Mexico as he imagined he would do it in his mind, which is this enlightened, as I say, sort of moderate liberal, in, in a sense, trying to recreate what Napoleon III is doing in 1860s France, which is moving much more towards the centre and away from the authoritarian empire he creates in the 1850s. The problem with that is he has, the people who do support him have called him to reign as a, as a Catholic traditional um, figure, you know, his opponents are called reactionary. They, they want the pomp and ceremony of, of, of monarchy. And what Maximilian does is he tries to appeal to, to Mexican nationalists, Mexican liberals, by dressing um, in traditional Mexican costumes. He's wearing a sombrero, he's wearing what, you know, I, we would essentially consider to be kind of cowboy getup. But when you call the most illustrious European dynasty, uh, you know, trace its power back to the medieval period, you don't expect them to turn up, you know, with a lasso. Um, and, and, and a big cowboy saddle and, and, and a sombrero, which is what Maximilian does. The fact that he confirms a lot of Juarez's liberal reforms further alienates his constituency, right? Because the whole reason that they continued the civil war was to end the liberal reforms that Benito Juarez had brought in against the Catholic Church. The, the key one being what, the, what his diehard supporters expect is that as soon as he comes, he will restore the property to the church that was confiscated under Benito Juarez's liberals. He doesn't. He confirms the sale of the church property. And so although that does bring on some, um, um, what I suppose it's kind of harsh and fair weather liberals, but certainly some moderate liberals do come on board, it alienates his constituency, um, the people who, who, who would go down to the death fighting for him and actually do in the end up go down to the death fighting for him. Um, and it fails to bring on board enough supporters on that moderate liberal side who don't want an ersatz European constitutional monarchy version of the radical liberalism that they fought and died for in Benito Juarez. So he does um, he does fail to, to, to win over a significant constituency um, in Mexico, absolutely. And then he goes and gets stabbed in the back by a little guy called Napoleon. <laughs> Who'd have thought that, you know, a guy in Napoleon? Do you know, and, what, and would, kind of family, you know what makes it even funnier, Ed? that Zach so loves watching Napoleon, the Napoleon family, the Bonapartes fail, is that fate has gifted him a girlfriend who is literally obsessed with Napoleon number one. Absolutely <laughs> obsessed. Yeah. And like, you can't even say, 
Yeah, but he killed his whole army in Egypt. It was a gift. <laughs> I know, but he owns it. I love it. Yeah, it's the Bonaparte's propaganda is incredibly effective. And that's, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, and, that's, you know, and, and that's part of the reason why Napoleon III is able to become Napoleon III, because uh, so many people in France by 1848 uh, were thinking like Zach's girlfriend. <laughs> um, they just remember but, the good times. They just remember yeah. the good times. So Napoleon III um, had done everything he could to get Maximilian to go to Mexico, right? Because it would have been, a, an, it, was a, it was a difficult policy to sell anyway. Um, to have spent hundreds of millions of francs and then for your emperor not to turn up would have been a bad look. Um, so he, t- he spends a lot of energy and political capital getting Maximilian there. One of the things he says to him is that, you know, don't worry, my support for you will never fail. He write, puts that in writing. Um, so it's a bit of a shock to Maximilian when his support does fail. Uh, and the reason for this is because, well, it's, there's a number of reasons. One is U.S. pressure and the United States of America all but threatens France with war unless they pull their forces out. They can now enforce the Monroe Doctrine the civil war's finished. Two, the difficulty of defeating the heroic resistance of Benito Juarez. It's not been the walk in the park. He was promised by Mexican monarchists. If it's going to work, it's going to become another Algeria. And that's the whole reason he embarked on this, was because he didn't want another Algeria. This was going to be empire on the ch- and thirdly, uh, Maximilian has proved himself to be a rather ineffectual ruler, much more interested in creating academies of arts and sciences, reforming education, giving rights to workers. Now, this, this is all great stuff. What Napoleon III wants is the finances organized and the payments made um, that were agreed before Maximilian left. That's not happening. So Maximilian has to ask Napoleon III for a bit of credit. He can't afford to pay um, what he's been asked to do. So Max, um, Napoleon III seizes on this as a pretext and says, aha, you agree to pay these monthly payments, you're not going to pay them. In reality, it's really the US pressure and the continued resistance of Benito Juarez. He announces something that's probably quite familiar to us these days, um, a phased withdrawal. He's going to take his troops out, uh, but he's not going to take them out in, immediately. He announces this January 1866. The plan is that they will, be, they will leave in three blocks and the final troops will leave at the end of 1867. The idea being that he's fulfilled his, his obligations to the United States of America, he's getting his troops out, but he's gonna give Maximilian basically two years uh, in which his regime can consolidate with continued French financial and military support. Uh, so it's, it's, it is, he does abandon him and Maximilian is furious and initially says that he will abdicate. But Napoleon III at this point still can um, massage it in the court of public opinion to say, well, I've giving, I'm giving him a chance. Um, he then quickly goes back on that as well. So um, there's more, but Bonaparte is perfidy, perfidy, what's the word? Perfidiousness, if that's the word, um, to come. I think, so I think Asquith says perfidity. I don't know if it's an actual word, but I've definitely seen that when he's complaining about the Italians. Yeah, some, 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 kind, of, uh, some kind of betrayal, let's call it that. Or, or yeah. See, we have a phrase that we tend to use on History Hat called shithousery, which I think <laughs> possibly covers it. Yeah, that's the technical term. It yeah, is. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so what 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 I'd say it's uh, to, to, to paint an even worse light, just in case um, you know anyone out there is still rooting for Napoleon III. Carlotta, uh, Maximilian decides to abdicate once he realizes the French support is, is, is going. He thinks, well, I can't I can't do this We're, you know, on, on my own. Um, the empire's not consolidated enough. He says, I'll abdicate. Now, Carlotta, when she hears this, is furious. She is absolutely. Absolutely adamant that he won't um, he won't abdicate. She tells him in no uncertain terms, and indeed so so un- 
so keen as she to get the point across, she actually writes a long memorandum. She accuses him of a cowardice. She says that kings in the medieval age at least waited until people took their states. And she says, as long as there is an, as there's an emperor, even if he's only occupied six feet, there will still be an empire, i.e. you go down fighting. Um, I love now, this. This is literally if your wife writes a fecking memorandum to you to explain why you're being a dick, you back down, don't you? Absolutely. He does. And he's, he's you know, I think he's, he's quite shocked by it, but also buoyed by it, because, as I say, he's sort of he's plunged into despair. She's so confident um, that, that they can turn it around um, that, uh, that it does buoy Maximilian. And she also says, and also don't worry about the French abandoning us, because I will go to Paris. I will speak to Napoleon III in person and I will remind him to, to his face with the written letters that I will take with me with his signature on saying that I will never abandon you. My support will not fail. So she um, just crowned herself emperor. She should have done. Yeah. And actually lots of Maximilian was um, he was dubbed the royal tourist because he he loved, he was really into botany and natural science. He loved touring Mexico and sort of cataloging butterflies and things like that. And so he'd be away for, uh, which is not great, great use of time, given the country is in the midst of civil war. But while he was away, Carlos would rule in Mexico City as regent and um, almost universally from Mexican politicians to French generals much prefer it when she was in power because it was decisive action was taken and she was much more competent than he was. Um, but of course, it wasn't a long-term solution. She decides to go back to France. Now, Napoleon III, no one likes to be reminded of their mistakes, uh, and least of all foreign policy mistakes that are crossing the lives of the At least of all a Bonaparte. At least of all a Bonaparte. So Napoleon III first tries to say, I'm sick. Um, I'm really sorry, but I'm not feeling well. We can't meet. She then says, so if I don't care, I'll break into the Tuileries. I will find you. Um, you know, to, um, <laughs> um, I love uh, this woman. I love her. She's like, I'm sick of men and their shithousery. I will fix this. Yeah, I will. So she 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 eventually shames him into a meeting. Um, and in that meeting, you know, Napoleon the third, he's very sorry, he breaks out of tears. It's at the point that Napoleon, sorry, that Carlotta brings out the letter saying, you know, my support will never fail you. Uh, but it's, there's nothing he can do. His hands are tied. So he's not going to risk war with the United States of America. He's not that much of a gambler. Um, and it's really, it's, it, the, the, the game is up as far as he's concerned. Um, and then what, what happens in that meeting, which is sort of a strategic mistake on Carlotta's point of view, is she still has this, this faith that Napoleon III is an honest guy and is telling the truth. And so she says, oh, it's your ministers. I understand now. It's your ministers who have talked you into this policy. I will have meetings with them, convince them, and then they will come back to you. And then they will tell you that, yes, we made a mistake and we can continue this support. So it's great. Yes, absolutely. I will set up all of those meetings. I'll give you whatever you want. Of course, full well knowing that, you know, his ministers are not going to listen to God. She's a 24-year-old Belgian princess and he's part of the foreign policy disaster for France. So those meetings are predictably, they're very polite. Yes, 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 but no. Um, and Napoleon III is, is then able to present to her a face accompli that there is going to be no more support. Now, Carlos has got one final trick up her sleeve, um, which is to go to the Pope in Rome. Because Catholic Mexico has been alienated by Maximilian's liberalism. If they can agree a concordat with the papacy, then that will rally Catholic Max Mexico. I mean, he said Mexico, which I guess is probably what Maximilian wanted to call it. <laughs> rally Catholic Mexico um, behind the empire. And, and perhaps that will turn the, the parties to tide, which is by now circling and beginning to circle. So she goes to the Vatican um, and she has a preliminary meeting with, with the Pope um, to try and come to an agreement. She spends the hour and a half not discussing um, church-state relations, as you'd expect, but accusing her entourage and Mexican politicians who travelled with her of trying to poison her 
on the orders of Napoleon III. She thinks that he has hired assassins to kill her. She begins to see Napoleon III um, as a devil incarnate. She calls him the principle of evil upon earth, which some people might agree with. Um, but it's not through any, any, any rational deduction. And of course, it's entirely untrue. Napoleon III is not trying to poison her. She is beginning to lose her mind, um, whether it be the pressure of the mission that she put upon herself or some longer term um, problem, we, we don't know. Um, and this, 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 the upshot of this is, is a denouement in the most dramatic of fashion. So she's meant to have a follow-up meeting with the Pope um, um, a, few, you know, a few days later, but she, she doesn't wait for that. She, one morning she demands that her servants drive her to the Vatican she bursts in unannounced again and um, you know showing that force of personality and said i want to see the pope and i want to see him now uh, and the pope of course it's early in the morning there's no appointment what do you do do you just go and see a you know um, a, a, a belgian princess early don't, in the morning don't fuck with this woman <laughs> well exactly i think that's that's what he decides so he says okay fine i'll meet with her um but she breaks down in tears sobbing uncontrollably uh, in the corridors of the vatican screaming that napoleon iii is drunk poison and um, she's lost all reason um, and she's absolutely convinced that his assassins are, um, you know, she only plays she be safe in the Vatican. She refuses to leave. She spends the night there, um, which you know, I think um, is not allowed, although I'm sure it's happened many a time, um, having, having, having princesses stay in the Vatican. And um, to cut, you know, cut again, there's so many long stories that need to be cut short in this tale. She's only eventually bundled out when she, um, she, the next day, she's so hungry. She won't eat anything because she thinks it will have been poisoned. But she sees a, a sort of vat of stew bubbling away and there's kitchens in the convent adjacent to the Vatican. Plunges her hand in to, to bring it out. And um, the pain of that causes her to pass out. So she's then bundled out of the Vatican. I mean, the, the, so the papers are on great. Now we can get her out. Um, and they bundled her out. And then she goes back to her hotel room where she sequesters herself away, still convinced that um, she's People are trying to poison her. So she won't eat anything apart from oranges, which she peels herself or nuts. Um, and I suppose those are good things to worry about poison. And then eventually she insists that um, live chickens be slaughtered in front of her and then cooked so that she can watch the entire preparation process. It's a really tragic tale because she's completely, she's completely lost her mind um, at this stage. And she has to be rescued by her Belgian family who come and take her away and take her back initially to Maximilian's fairy tale castle where she convalesces. Um, but in Back to Mexico, Maximilian has no idea about this. It's, um, there is a transatlantic cable that's been laid that doesn't work very well, so most communication four to six weeks. When he hears that Carlotta is, uh, has lost, you know, has had this breakdown, he decides to abdicate for a second time. Yeah, he's not going to do it without her, is he? He's not going to do it without her. He's a butterfly collecting wuss. He's not, <laughs> he's not up for civil war without his wife. He's, I, he's, I'm not being funny, though, but why hasn't he learned from the first round if she wrote a memorandum when he suggested it the first time what's she gonna do when she recovers and then finds that while she's been convalescing he's gone and abdicated this guy right. isn't thinking is he no well, this, this hasn't so, thought this plan through by this point maximilian himself is isolated most of his um his his sort of friends people he knew from europe have gone back to europe he's got some close advisors um and Mexican officers who he does trust, but he's increasingly isolated. And without Carlotta, he, one of the things about Maximilian is he doesn't like the social side of monarchy. So he, um, Carlotta was great at that, holding reception balls and things like that. Without her in Mexico, he increasingly retreats into this interior world, into the vast, um, vast palaces of residency. He's, he's um, sort of done up for himself, seeing fewer and fewer people. And although he initially does decide to abdicate, um, 
and if you do read the book, you won't be surprised to learn. And that's a decision that he agonizes over for many, many days. And after 40 days of agonizing, he eventually decides not to. And the reason that he decides to go back on his decision to abdicate is partially because of what you said about Carlotta. It's partially his conception of honor. He, he has this, he's obsessed by honor. He wakes up every morning and I, I think he asks himself, what, what would be honorable? What would a house vote do? Uh, and the answer to that question is not abdicate. His conservative supporters in Mexico, now they have him um, isolated. And now that the liberal forces are resurgent and you know, the liberal program is over, there's no point pursuing that. Uh, so they convince him that there'll be huge support if he just backs what he should have, they say he should have done the whole time, their conservative and Catholic policies. And um, actually one of the final people that, that persuades him to stay is a British uh, diplomat, British minister to Mexico, who, who similarly says it would be dishonourable to abdicate. So this is the point where Britain comes in and has some appropriate on it because uh, Maximilian is a massive anglophile. And he thinks that if the British diplomat is telling him to stay, that's because the British government wants him to stay. Now, the British government are horrified when they learn what this diplomat has said, and he gets in quite a lot of trouble, actually, um, because of reasons we'll see. But Maximilian, um, because of honour, because of his hatability, because of Carlotta, because of the persuasiveness of his conservative allies, thinks, OK, fine. French leaving, but I've got this. I'm going to rally the empire and my supporters and overcome the increasingly um, victorious liberal forces that are beginning to converge um, on all parts of his empire. So how does it all go wrong? What's the final chapter like? <laughs> what, could, what could go wrong? Well, um, it's important. by this point, you know, we're talking about an empire and it sounds such a grandiose word. We're just talking about Mexico City, which is admittedly an enormous fantastic Grandeur. I mean, it was the capital of one of the most wealthy parts of the Spanish Empire in the 16th century. So um, it, he, he controls that. He controls Veracruz, which is the main Atlantic port. He controls Puebla, the town, the city that, um, that the French had so much trouble taking, and a few more towns to the northwest of Mexico. The rest of Mexico is in, is in Paris-Dahan. Um, his conservative allies um, tell him that we can make one last desperate um, stand against Juaristas, who are all converging on a town um, called Queretaro. Now, Queretaro, it's, it's believed to be an, an imperial Easter stronghold because it's deeply Catholic and churches and convents. Uh, and so the plan is we'll march what remains of the imperial army out to, out to this town, meet up with imperial Easter forces there. There are three Easter armies converging, but not at the same time. So we can defeat them separately. Glorious triumph. The French are not involved in this, so no one can say this is foreign intervention. And Maximilian will be, you know, just hero people flock flock to him now i think that it's if anyone ever says well i think what what we need to do is 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 one last desperate stand which if we win we'll convince everyone that this is this definitely the option to support it's not a great plan um a lot goes wrong with it not least maximilian appoints himself commander-in-chief of the army he's never served in the army he was a naval man um, in fact, military matters used to bore him as a child, um, let alone commanded one. So putting Maximilian, who's indecisive, he's now suffering from fevers, he's got dysentery, he's taking opium pills for the pain. In charge of this army, probably he's probably not the man you want leading you. Also, the imperialist forces now, so the, the force that he leads to Queretaro, um, it's about 1,500 men. Um, now, and these people have been pressed ganged off the streets of Mexico City. These are not veterans of the, of the, of the Civil War. They, and the conservatives say, we'll get you tens of millions of dollars. They have $50,000, which is not a lot of money um, in today. And it would be a bit more then, but it's not enough to provision an army. 
1,500 men. They march, march to this town, Cretero. They meet up with some more imperialist forces. And, and these are veterans and these are better trained. He's got about 9,000 men. Parisians have got at least 30,000. So what very quickly happens is the town is put under siege. That plan to decisively march out and defeat each army separately, that gets put to committee, debated. And by the time they come to a decision, it's too late. He's under siege. Now they hold out. And at this point, I think at least in Maximilian's mind, he is the heroic Habsburg leader that he's always dreamt of being. He shows incredible bravery. He leads from the front. He's under fire. They're not sleeping. Cretor is a disastrous place to be under siege on three sides of the hills, which the Faristas occupy with their artillery. Shells are raining down day after day. Um, they're running out of food and they're beginning to starve. Um, but as I say, there's heroic resistance. The plan is to break out. Um, because they, desertion is becoming a problem and there's no food uh, after 70 days of siege. The plan is to break out on the 13th of May, delayed. The plan is to break out on the 14th of May, delayed. On the night of the 14th of May, so this is Maximilian's modus operandi as commander-in-chief, delay, which is, you know, I suppose it occasionally works in military history, but, but not in this situation. On the night of the 14th, he brings in one of his most loyal Mexican lieutenants, a guy called Miguel Lopez. He awards him a medal for bravery. Um, Maximilian is actually a uh, godfather to one of Lopez's um, children. And he says to Lopez, when we break out, if it looks like I'm going to be captured, you need to put a bullet through my head. I don't want to be taken alive. Lopez is like, have That'd be fine. Maximilian goes to bed. 5 a.m. wakes up. Uh, Lopez and his men burst into the convent, which they've made their citadel, their headquarters. And he says, the enemy are, you know, at the gates. But you know, you get a, it, escape. Lopez and his there's sort of confusion, chaos within, within, within the headquarters as Maximilian and his closest entourage sort of desperately make to get out of the convent. They get across the courtyard and they get to the gates of, of the convent. And they're stopped by Far Easter soldiers who've broken in through their lines. Uh, and then the, the officer looks over the emperor, the so-called emperor, of course, because he wouldn't have recognised him as such, and his entourage and says, let these men pass, they're civilians. Now that's very odd. Um, and we might come back to that. Um, and what Maximilian now decides to do is make his way to a place called the Hill of the Bells. This overlooks the town. There's a garrison up there. He thinks he can rally his forces. Uh, and he, he uh, sort of artillery fire raining down upon him as he scrambles up this hill. And he looks down and he sees the town surrendering below him. So eventually he has to um, send an officer down with a white flag and he does surrender. Now, what's happened is that um, Lopez, instead of putting a bullet through Maximilian's head as, as, as he asked if he was about to be captured, he's actually gone over to the Quarries de Lines that very night um, and betrayed the emperor. And he leads a small force of Quarries into the town. He gets the Imperialist guards to stand down. Of course, they see one of you know, Maximilian's closest officers telling them to, to, to go somewhere else or to point the artillery elsewhere, and they obey him. So he's been betrayed um, in this final final moment, in this final siege, and he's taken, taken prisoner. What a hell of a story. We've run out of time, which is really annoying because I would love to sit here for another hour and bash Napoleon III and <laughs> um, talk about this guy, Maximilian, and just such a bizarre, just such a bad choice, really, uh, as an emperor. <laughs> I know you're already desperate to get Ed back to do in a podcast just about Napoleon III. Oh, well, we absolutely yes. should do that. Oh, yes. But Ed, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute riot. I've loved it um, in my smug way. Um, so the last Emperor of Mexico, a disaster in the new world, will be out by the time that this goes out. Folks, we'll stick it on the History Hack bookstore. Check the links in the description. You'll be able to find it. Go buy it because um, you've just had a flavour of 
the hilarity that is this story. So, Ed, thank you so much. Not at all, no. It's been hugely enjoyable. Thank you. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So, to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.